from the Polium Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University. I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media. I think in a way, transparency is the new objectivity. You know, that's the way to validate and, you know, show our work. You know, so when you show your work and show what you're doing, that's another way to build trust. My guest today is journalist Indira Lakshmanan. Indira Lakshmanan is the Newmark Chair in Journalism Ethics at the Pointer Institute. She's covered campaigns, coups, and revolutions, reporting from the U.S. and 80 countries for the Boston Globe, Bloomberg, the New York Times, NPR, PBS, Politico Magazine, and others. She traveled for seven years with Secretaries of State Hillary Clinton and John Kerry. She's guest-hosted NPR shows including 1A, The Diane Reem Show, Here and Now, and Weekend Edition, and she writes a column for the Boston Globe. Indira Lakshmanan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I want to jump right in and uh, talk about fake news, because we have to. Um, What is and what is not fake news, as far as you're concerned? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, first of all, fake news, although the term came into prominence last year during the 2016 election, or most of all in the aftermath of the 2016 election because of the huge influence that fake news had, um, potentially even on swaying people's outcome and vote on the election. Um, But I think that fake news has existed for all time. I mean, there were probably fake Paleolithic cave drawings (laughs) that depicted someone getting a much bigger bison than he actually did. Um, So I don't think that the, the actual thing of false information or misinformation, it's not new. What's new is having the internet and having certain um, distribution channels, whether they are fora like Reddit or Facebook as a platform or Twitter as a platform, the ability to spread um, and sort of li- literally like wildfire across the internet and to go from being, you know, a few conspiracy theorists who get together in their community, let's say, to being potentially millions or multiples of millions of conspiracy theorists across the country or across the world, that's really problematic. So what is fake news and what isn't it? So fake news has both economic motivations and political motivations, or sometimes just it's for lols. It's just satirical Mm -hmm. for laughs. So there's everything from, you know, the onion uh, or the duffel blog, which is another satirical military, fake military thing that is just jokes. They're not really trying to confuse or confound anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, They're just out there for humor, like the Borowitz report. Um, I was a correspondent in China for seven years. I was the Boston Globe's Asia Bureau Chief. And I can tell you that many times there were moments when the People's Daily or China Daily picked up stories from The Onion believing they were true <laughs> and wrote headlines saying, look at crazy America and look at the awful things that happen in America. And we had to laugh because we knew The Onion wasn't a real news source. But I think in this country, hopefully, it wouldn't confuse most people. So that's one end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Another end of this matrix is um, people who are doing it for money and don't have any actual political motivation. So those are people like the Macedonian teenagers who wanted money for their sneakers, and therefore they were creating as many fake clickable news stories as possible to try to raise the number of eyeballs and pennies per ad that they got. Um, But they didn't actually care if Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump won or whatever the subject may be, um, or Brexit in or out, that sort of thing. You also have people who are um, motivated 
with specific political intent or intent to just spread disinformation and chaos. And so this is, again, the spectrum between those who are sort of politically motivated Americans who put out false stories. So I would include in this category InfoWars, mm-hmm. which is a notorious website and online radio and television show um, whose um, mastermind, Alex Jones, has said all sorts of incredibly damaging and dangerous things that are not true, uh, claiming that 9-11 was all faked or that it was an inside job, claiming that the Sandy Hook massacre of, um, you know, something like 20-odd children in Connecticut in Newtown, that that was all faked and those were child actors. So a lot of horrible things that have been spread by that person and his side, and there are many others Mm -hmm. like him. And then there is also Russia. In this case, you know, when we look at the 2016 election, there were bots and there were sort of entire troll farms who were spreading false information, headlines like, um, you know, Pope endorses Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, FBI agent investigating Hillary Clinton found dead in murder-suicide. Neither of those things ever happened. The information was spread by people who, again, were either trying to earn bucks mm-hmm. from from clicks or who were trying to spread disinformation in the campaign. Yeah, and it strikes me that that's a really nice way to sort of break that down, and thank you. <clears throat> it strikes me that there are a couple of issues that come out of this. On the one hand, you know, the financial thing. I mean, obviously... Uh, I saw a chart, uh, and in fact, I used it in a talk the other day that showed that it, they, right when the election got close, fake news sites were outperforming real news sites on Facebook in terms of clicks, right? So the financial motivation was certainly there. The other thing that strikes me, though, is when the president starts saying fake news for things that either he just doesn't agree with or that maybe a news outlet got wrong, Lumping that into the category of fake news has really confused the matter for a lot of people. Is that? Absolutely. And it's an incredibly politically canny and clever thing that the president has done by taking the term fake news and turning it on its head and in a way, um, you know, pardon the term, but emasculating the term, sort Mm -hmm. of stripping it of all meaning. Um, The same thing you'll see just in recent days and weeks is happening with the word collusion. Mm -hmm. So the word collusion, which in our minds has come now to mean collusion between elements of the Trump campaign and Russia, which is being investigated by Bob Mueller, whether it's true or not, we'll find out. Um, Hopefully we'll find out. Um, But that word collusion has sort of stuck like glue to the Trump campaign and its whole, you know, what what it was doing in 2016. Now that word has been sort of dislodged, collusion. And you hear Roy Moore, um, the Alabama Senate candidate, who women have accused of having pursued inappropriate sexual relationships Mm -hmm. with them when they were teenagers, and he was an adult man, a prosecutor. um, And he has used the term collusion now, saying this is the Washington Post and the Democratic Party, they're colluding, it's all collusion. So, you know, there's a, you know, these people are politicians, they're clever, you appropriate a word that you don't like, and you reinvent the meaning to mean something else. Um, I know you've had Craig Silverman on this program Mm -hmm. before, and um, his work for BuzzFeed on fake news has been really just groundbreaking. And one of the things I'm sure you guys talked about it, but I think it's relevant for this conversation, is Craig was able to see how in the aftermath of the 2016 campaign, he analyzed the best performing stories on Facebook and found that the 20 
top performing fake news headlines, and I mean the things I just said, like Pope endorses Trump, never yeah. happened. Um, Hillary Clinton tied to pedophilia ring and pizza mm-hmm. parlor in Washington, never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, those top 20 headlines outperformed the top 20 real news headlines mm-hmm. in um, you know, reputable news organizations like the Washington Post, the New York Times, um, the Network News, et cetera, um, by between 1.3 million and 1.4 million additional pieces of engagement, likes, and shares mm-hmm. on the fake pieces of news than on the real pieces of news. So the influence of fake news is real. It can't be denied. Um, but President Trump really took offense when people started talking about fake news after November 2016 because Mm -hmm. he was offended that anybody would say or imply that his election and selection might have had to do with fake news. And so, you know, he he took the term and, as I said, reinvented its meaning and sort of weaponized it in a clever way. So unfortunately now there are many people who just – hurl the term fake news at any media they don't like. And that's not just limited to other politicians. It's also true in the general public Mm -hmm. that, you know, I look down at comments under people's columns and stories and readers who don't like it will say fake news. And it's like, no, there's actually nothing fake about that. You may not like that story, but that doesn't make Mm -hmm. it fake. You know, it strikes me also that um, a lot of this conversation is is the natural outgrowth of what was happening maybe 20 years ago, maybe less, about bias, right? So you have uh, Bernie Goldberg's book come out accusing the media of being left-leaning, Democrat voting, you know, we can't be, you know, they can't be trusted. I see now a neighbor of mine has a bumper sticker or had one that said, I don't trust the liberal media, right? And at the same time, you then have people like Noam Chomsky saying things like, there is no liberal bias. There is only a business bias. In, or a conservative in, or a bias conservative, in his mind. conservative bias in the, in the media. So um, it, do you think that is? I mean, is that true? Is this, is this an outgrowth of that general distrust of, of media that was coming out of a, a fairly clearly articulated strategy by people like Roger Ailes at Fox who were trying to and, – and Goldberg, who I think had, had a point he wanted to make – but who are coming at um, at the from at it from the idea that the 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 general mainstream news media was was not to be trusted is that I think there are several levels of an answer to that mm-hmm. question. One is that um, Donald Trump did not invent distrust in the media; he no. merely capitalized <laughs> yes. on it, and so it has existed for decades and perhaps even longer. Um, so let me dig down on that answer mm-hmm. a little bit um, we there, the surveys um, to which you refer about distrust in the media, the most famous one is the Gallup survey. That's mm-hmm. been going since the 1970s, 1973 specifically. And they haven't looked just at distrust in the media. They've looked at distrust in institutions. Mm. So Congress, the Supreme Court, the presidency, all sorts of institutions. And the fact is that distrust in institutions in general has been falling since the nineteen since the late nineteen seventies. Yeah. Um, the the few institutions that generally have not seen so much of a decline are the military and the police, but everybody else has seen big declines, and that includes. Uh, the media, but it also includes Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, the Supreme Court is probably the only branch of government that hasn't seen a big decline yeah. in people's trust. But I think 
in some ways, I think that the high that we saw in the Gallup survey, which was, I think, in 1976, if I'm not mistaken, was in some ways perhaps ahistorical and anomalous. Why do I say that? I say that because I think throughout American history, news organizations had been, prior to the creation of network news, partisan. Um, There was in any any town you would go to, and I expect this applies to Greencastle or Indianapolis, there was the labor newspaper, there was the fat cat newspaper, there was the communist newspaper, there were different newspapers to represent different points of view when we had a proliferation of newspapers or even pamphlets or newsletters. What happened in the 1950s, of course, was the rise of network news where you had three network newscasts and people, all Americans, would sit down in their house at the same time every day and they would watch, you know, one of three trusted news sources. And the um, FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, regulations were such that there was something called the Fairness Doctrine, as you well know, mm-hmm. that, f- that insisted that you present all sides of an issue. Now... You know, in the 1970s, we, w- what were the factors that we saw? We saw the post-Vietnam War, so people's frustration with governmental institutions and perhaps a rise in trust in the press as having exposed what was going on in Vietnam. You saw v- Watergate, so of course a decline in trust in the presidency and in parties and a rise in trust perhaps in the media because of having exposed Watergate. Um, but that also begins. um, So, you know, I think that was an irregular high watermark for trust in the media. What happened in the 1980s, um, as again, I'm sure you know, is Ronald Reagan started deregulating. Mm -hmm. um, And the FCC eliminated the fairness doctrine. And all of this enabled the rise of right wing talk radio and of cable news. And the idea was you don't have to present all sides because you're going to let a 100 flowers bloom. You're going to have so Mm -hmm. many different points of view that it won't matter. What really happened was that right-wing news organizations sort of jumped in to fill the space. And as you say, Roger Ailes' entire business model for Fox News was to convince his viewers, they don't get us, they don't get you. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the mainstream media is not giving you the real story. We'll give you the real story. We're fair and balanced. We'll give you the real story. And so there are generations of people who were brought up on Fox News or who were already adults, let's face it, when they started watching Fox News because most of its demographic is older Mm -hmm. and white and male. That's the dominant demographic. Um, And who have been convinced by this mantra, you know, don't believe, don't trust the liberal media. So the fact is that Fox was able to capitalize on that and really amplify that message. And so did Rush Limbaugh and other purveyors of right-wing talk radio. And I think that people have bought into that, many people. But when we talk about distrust in the media, we also have to be a little bit careful because the, the, the graphs, if you look at the line graphs on this show, that it's really a Republican issue. Mm-hmm. Distrust in the media is about Republicans distrusting the media. And to a somewhat lesser degree, um, or to a much lesser degree, I should say, independence. But Democrats actually don't distrust the media. Hmm. So you could argue, um, well, you know, this is because the media has a liberal or democratic bias. Um, and, you know, I'm open to hearing those sure. arguments. But um, but the overall thing of distrust in the media is is really along partisan lines. And I think that's why one of the biggest projects we have right now is trying to figure out how to break through, mm-hmm. break, not only reach across partisan lines, but break through partisan echo chambers. Because now, technology is such that we can watch 
only the channel we want. So you have people who lock themselves into a Fox bubble and other people who likewise lock themselves into an MSNBC bubble. And mm-hmm. they just hear the same thing that they want to hear repeated back to them over and over. And with the internet, with Facebook, you can like and then the algorithm will <laughs> choose to continue to feed you liberal or conservative news. Um, and you can get into your 4chan Reddit group or whatever and only listen to white supremacist right-wing points of view. So it means that there's a little, you know, a filter bubble for everybody. And I think that's really damaging because you don't hear a wide viewpoint. You don't hear a wide range of views. And you start to think that everybody thinks like you. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, all that problem gets magnified. Yeah, I'm actually really glad you took it back to sort of Reagan era deregulation, because I think that really opened the door to a what we can call a sort of democratizing of technology, right? All these technologies that are supposed to democratize the media, let the market do its work, have really had um, a deep impact on this. Now, on the one hand, one can say, well, everybody's got a voice. Everybody's out there. Everybody can have their say, and the market will determine what's what's right. But these algorithms that are designed to um, drive traffic in certain ways, they also can be manipulated to um, generate financial uh, gain, um, fly in the face of that. As you said, they create these echo chambers. Um, and so I'm really curious about, I'm, I mean, there may be no answer to this, but I'm, I'm just really fascinated by the interplay between a technology that's designed or technologies that are designed to open up the public sphere, right? But that also in some ways damage it in 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 very real ways by allowing in information that just simply disrupts the free flow of actual facts. It's a really difficult challenge that we have because particularly in a society where we value the First Amendment, at least we do. Mm -hmm. I mean, we may have heard complaints from um, the, you know, commander in chief about um, free speech and he's made a lot of very um, frightening um, comments about how he'd like the FCC to intervene and yank broadcast licenses, which, of course, first of all, they can't even do, can't, not no. the way he's talking about it, but he wants to open up libel laws to yeah. make it easier to sue the media for stories he and others don't like, which, again, you can't do. That's done on a state level. Yeah. But we have to be strong about protecting free speech. The problem with that is that I fully admit it opens up. You know, it also extends that protection to people like Alex Jones, who says dangerous things. I mean, when Pizzagate happened, Pizzagate is a good example. And this is, you know, this was my neighborhood pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., where I took my kids. And as soon as that story came out, which was completely false, essentially this is how it began, if your listeners don't remember it. When John Podesta's emails were hacked and released, amongst his emails, John Podesta was Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, amongst his emails was a back and forth between him and the owner of this local pizza parlor in um, in Washington, D.C., about having a fundraiser, about hosting a fundraiser or getting some pizzas or something like that. From that, the, someone who read those emails essentially decided, okay, this pizza parlor is in cahoots with Hillary Clinton's campaign and completely invented out of whole cloth a story saying that they were keeping young children prisoner in the cellars of this pizza parlor and sexually abusing them and that Hillary Clinton and John Podesta were at the top of a sick pedophile ring. I mean, this was completely slanderous, defamatory, wrong. There was nothing in it. People made up all sorts of things saying there was some satanic symbol 
symbols. I mean, there was, of course, nothing in the yeah. emails that would indicate this was going on. But they said this word equals this, this word equals this. They mm-hmm. just made it all up. So many people who followed these message boards actually believed this. And there were conspiracy theorist, quote unquote, journalists, you know, basically mm-hmm. people who are fake news mongers and purveyors who spread this. And those include Mike Cernovich, um, who is a big supporter of Trump, Alex Jones, who's a big supporter of Trump and who Trump has said, you have so much respect, I won't let you down, you know, you're great, when when he interviewed the president during the campaign, etc. So these people spread this news, which wasn't news, spread this false story. And I said at the time, mark my words, some crazy person who believes this you know, crazy or ignorant or vulnerable, you know, use whatever word you want. Someone who is open to believing this is going to believe it and they're going to come up to Washington with a gun. And that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. A guy from North Carolina, naive, whatever you want to call him, um, came up with this, with a gun and shot the place up. Fortunately, nobody was hurt. He did acknowledge that he went around and there wasn't even a basement in which anyone could be held prisoner. And uh, there were no children being held prisoner. But, you know, the problem is that individual people have to go debunk this nonsense. I mean, it's a problem when we have a rise in fact-checking, which Mm -hmm. is great. But it's a problem if the result of the rise in fact-checking is not necessarily that more people believe it. The sad truth is that there have been a lot of studies of fact-checking that show that people actually don't believe it. Or when they do, they may say, okay, so you've convinced me of this one fact, but I'm still not going to change my vote or my behavior. Yeah, confirmation bias is real, right? Absolutely. uh, So I have one more question for you. Um, What should – given that we have this trust gap and this thing that's happening, um, what should, in your estimation, should news outlets, legitimate news outlets be doing to increase the level of trust – among the, the the population, that's something I'm working on right now, and um, you know, trying to study across the industry who is doing what and which newsrooms are having success, and try to spread the word about that where things can be replicated. One example is something called Solutions Journalism Network, which, full disclosure, I'm on their advisory board. And they have done studies to show that if you do solutions journalism, and by that I don't mean just like happy clappy stories about, you know, some some nice community story. No. I mean a story that is hard-hitting, investigative, that shows something that is working in one place. Let's say um, that washing hands in X hospital reduced central line infections by X percent and reduced the death from, say, MRSA, the MRSA virus, Mm -hmm. by X percent. That's solution journalism. If you show how that hospital did it, then other hospitals and other communities can replicate it. That kind of journalism builds trust because people believe that you care about them, you care about their issues, and you're writing and reporting in ways that actually have real-world applications for them. That's one example. Um, you know, another another example is better and more community engagement and listening, whether it's through an ombudsman or a public editor, but actually meeting with members of the community and understanding what their issues are. So I think face-to-face meeting always helps. Unfortunately, we, the journalists, can't meet every single American person, um, but they have to be able to see that we're real people who are not just um, being paid to make stories up, but are out there every day doing hard work. And so part of the answer to that is transparency. I think in a way, transparency is the new objectivity. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the way to validate and 
you know, show our work. And a good example of that is the recent Washington Post story about Roy Moore, where they very explicitly went through their story and said, these women did not come to us with these allegations. We heard a rumor. We spent months tracking it down. We went to them. And after numerous repeated interviews, they agreed to go on the record with their names. You know, so when you show your work and show what you're doing, that's another way to build trust. But it's very much a problem that we're still working on, um, crowdsourcing reporting the way that David Fahrenheit did um, for his stories on Trump charities or lack thereof during the campaign. That's another good example. But, you know, this is something that I think is the biggest problem right now that we really need to work on, figuring out how to restore um, trust in the media. Well, on that note, Indira Lakshmanan, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure for me. Thank you so much for having me. And that'll do it for another installment of Modern Media. Our guest today has been Indira Lakshmanan, the Newmark Chair in Journalism Ethics at the Pointer Institute. You can find out more about Indira Lakshmanan's work by going to our website, www.modernmediapodcast.org. Modern Media is a production of the Polium Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University. Our show was edited today by Laurel Tilton, Meredith Breda, and Jay Klein. Our webmaster is Chris Newton. You can follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media.